All right, it's Palm Sunday, and I forgot to bring my palm up. It's on the, I, don't need, I don't need it, Rachel, it's okay. I was just like, oh, of course, it's on the ground. That just kind of, man, I am who I am. Thanks for letting me be who I am. Today is the day we get to remember together the story where Jesus rode on a donkey down into Jerusalem, and it's the story of his final entrance into that city before his death. So let me tell you that story. So one day, it was about a week before Jesus' death, he was traveling from a town called Bethany to Jerusalem. Now, Bethany is about, I would estimate, about an hour and a half's walk from Jerusalem. And it's a town where Jesus often stayed when he came into town because some of his dear friends lived there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So Jesus was kind of super popular in Bethany because he had recently performed a big miracle there. It was said that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And like everyone had heard about it, like everybody. And in fact, to this day, that town is now called Elazaria after Lazarus, which marks that event. So between the town of Bethany over here and sort of the big city of Jerusalem, there lies a great big hill called the Mount of Olives. Right, so Jerusalem is a city that's nestled in several hills, and the Mount of Olives is the one that's just to its east. Now, a lot of people lived on the Mount of Olives and still do, and it's a little bit hard, like in Michigan anyway, to sort of understand when we say hill. It's not like Mount Brighton. This isn't a little hill. It's actually quite a large, long hill where there's lots of things, like Hebrew University is there. There's churches and hospitals and lots of neighborhoods and, and even grave sites that are all up and down it. So it's quite a large, like almost mountain. Um, one of the smaller villages on that hill in Jesus's day was called Bethphage. So Jesus was traveling from over here in Bethany from his friend's house up onto the Mount of Olives to a place called Bethphage, and then he was going over that hill and down into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So on his way from Bethany to Bethphage up the hill there, Jesus sent two of his friends ahead of him to go and find a donkey and a colt. Now, the Gospels of Mark and Luke just say a cult, but Matthew says both of them echoing um, a verse from Zechariah that we'll read a little bit later. So if you picked up the verses on your way in, I'm going to read the part here from Matthew. Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, Say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them back right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went, and they did as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So as that's happening... Tens of thousands of people from all around the region are also streaming into Jerusalem for the feast. And so word started to get around, especially near Bethany, that this rabbi who had raised Lazarus from the dead, he was in town, and he was on his way to Jerusalem via Bethphage. And so people started coming and congregating along that road that led from Bethphage down into Jerusalem so that they could see him. And so as Jesus rode the donkey from the top of the Mount of Olives, people lined the streets and they placed their jackets on the ground and they placed palm leaves on the ground. And they also took some of those palm leaves and they waved them around and they started to say things and shout things as Jesus rode into the city. Right? Things like, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Right? By choosing to ride on a donkey, I always want to say it like that, donkey. Jesus, I don't know, there was like an old Bare Naked Ladies song. This is like not in my notes. Do you remember, he always wanted a monkey? And that's what I think of when I hear the word donkey. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus is on the donkey. And in doing this, he's rejecting the symbols of imperial power, right? And he's identifying instead here with the poor and with the oppressed. So we often hear this talked about, or sometimes it's even subheaded in the Gospels. It's like the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was a triumphal entry, but it was a little bit like um, sort of an anti-triumphal entry that was an act of protest against the Roman occupation and against the religious authorities who had been collaborating with it. And so there's a very good New Testament scholar and historian. His name is John Dominic Cross, and he's an Irish guy. I think he's still alive. I think he's like 90. But I like that he, he said this. Um, he said, Jesus' procession deliberately countered what was happening on the other side of the city. Right, so what Crossan is referring to there is that over on the west side of the city, Pontius Pilate, remember we talked about he's one of the, he's like the Roman procurator over Jerusalem, and he was much loathed by the Jewish people. So Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, would also have been entering into the city at this time with his own processional from his main residence in Caesarea Maritima over on the coast, because Pilate always came into Jerusalem for the feasts. Right, so Crossan goes on, he says, Pilate's procession embodied the power and the glory and the violence of the empire that ruled the world. Jesus's procession embodied an alternative vision, the kingdom of God. This contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar is central not only to the gospel of Mark, but to the story of Jesus and early Christianity. And I always think we know it's quite central because it's actually in all four of the gospels, which isn't true of all the stories that we have. So we noted here in Matthew's gospel, which we read, was that Jesus asked for two animals, a donkey with her little colt beside her, right? So Jesus doesn't choose to ride a stallion. He doesn't choose to ride a war horse. He doesn't even pick a mule or a male donkey. He rides the most unmilitary mount that was imaginable in his day, a female nursing donkey with her little colt trotting along beside her. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into the heart of the city, not as a conquering hero, but as a champion of the poor and the oppressed. And he signals his commitment to this different kind of power, one that's grounded in love and compassion and injustice. And so the crowds are surrounding him and they're waving their palm branches, which are banners of resistance, right? So why palm branches? That seems like kind of an odd thing, right? This was probably a nod to the Jewish festival of Sukkot. Right, this is where palm branches were, they still are today, used in a, similar way, in a similar way. Sukkot commemorates the 40 years where the Israelites um, had been spent wandering the desert after they had been liberated from slavery in Egypt. So during that journey, the Israelites had lived in these sort of little makeshift structures that were called sukkahs. And they constructed those with things like branches and with different leaves. And so this use of the palm branches connects the story of that liberation from Egypt long ago with the hoped-for liberation from Rome. Right? So the palm branches are symbols of resilience and resistance and hope that's part of this grander narrative right, that we've been unpacking all through Lent, talking about how all the different empires had been oppressing the Jewish people. And this is connecting this strand of liberation from Egypt to, please God, liberation from Rome. Liberation theologians emphasize the role that the crowds were playing here in Palm Sunday that they were surrounding him and they were recognizing in him a leader who was going to stand with them and stand for them. 
After all, there was an old prophecy that said that this was what would happen. So this is God speaking through the prophet Zechariah. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I'm keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." And so people being familiar with this prophecy think, well, maybe this is the man who will set up this rulership over the whole earth. I argue that Jesus's vision of what that looks like might have been different from some of theirs. And there were varying expectations, right, about how he might do this and what that might look like. But as he rode into town there, all of these projected hopes and dreams of the people were resting on him. And so the exuberant crowd was crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by Friday of that week, Rome was going to hang this same man on a cross. And Jesus seems to know that. He seems to know that this is not going to go well for him. Right? In Luke's account, in Luke 19, it says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and they will encircle you and hem you in on every side and they're going to dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They won't leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's a pretty dire prediction going on in his heart because he knows, he can read that his land is a powder keg, that it's ready to explode and he can see where things are going to go if the trajectory continues the way it has been going. And indeed, about 40 years later, Rome did come in and completely destroy the city. But even with this, Jesus goes in anyway, compelled by what he feels like God is asking him to do. And so as we head in this week into Good Friday, something that I like us to remember, because I feel like it's been a common thread in Western Christianity since the Reformation, that like God killed Jesus, and I want us to remember together that God did not kill Jesus, that we humans killed Jesus. And in the Christian tradition, what happened in this space was that Jesus became the representative scapegoat for all of humanity, all times and all places. And so when scripture tells us that Jesus bore the sin of the world, he was, he was bearing all of the projected anxieties and violence and shame and disloyalties he represented all of the innocent victims that were past, present, and future who have ever been excluded, harmed, exiled, murdered, anything like that to appease the larger social anxieties because that's what was happening to him. And so we know that Jesus' death in a lot of ways was a little unremarkable. Right? It bears resemblance to so many stories of other scapegoats throughout time. And that includes the many people who were also crucified before and after Jesus by Rome. Right? He's not like the only person that got crucified in history with the two people beside him. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands in Palestine in those decades were crucified. His story is similar to people like Matthew Shepard and Sandra Bland and George Floyd. His story is similar to the children and the teachers who are getting shot in schools all over America. Right? The idea is that innocents who are bearing the weight of our collective violence 
bearing the weight of our collective sin to appease our anxieties. So Jesus stands with them, and he knows what that feels like, and he declares that unjust. Right? His story remains remarkable and different from theirs in that we're told that he doesn't stay sacrificed. Right? That he was crucified as an innocent scapegoat, and he died, but God raised him up to show us that our human sentence of death our human declaration that he was deserving of death, that all of these scapegoats are deserving of death, that that is unjust, and that God stands with the scapegoats. All right, we'll pick that thread up a little bit on Easter, but I think that Good Friday is a really helpful time for us to remember like why we do communion each week the way we do. Right, it can sound kind of weird. His body broken. We remember that every week, right? His body broken. His blood shed. Right, we proclaim his death until he comes again. What does that mean? In our tradition, Jesus is meant to be the final scapegoat. Right? He, anytime we are tempted to like, falsely blame or accuse or treat people, minority groups, whomever, casually blame them for social ills, treat innocence as collateral damage, that we remember that Jesus' death showed the futileness of this and that that doesn't bring lasting peace, which is why God overturned that death sentence. So when we come up here every week and we would say, we remember his body was broken, we remember his blood was shed because that was unjust and it shouldn't happen again. And we'll proclaim that, we'll proclaim that death as the final act of that until he comes again. Does that make sense? That's why we ritualize it. It's why we remember it. It's why he told us every time you do this, do it and remember me so that you remember not to do that to one another. So with that, we will have our, we'll have our guided meditation. We usually do about a minute or two of silence or maybe just some um, contemplation on a verse. And I thought we would just sit here and just remember together that we proclaim his death until he comes again. And maybe we can let that just sort of sit and ruminate in our hearts and let the Spirit speak to us. A little noise is fine, people, and kids make noise. I'll let you know when the time is up. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Holy Spirit, on this week when we are heading into Good Friday, when we remember 
the events surrounding your death, we ask that um, you would let some of this weigh in our hearts, some of this need for human repentance, some of this need for human salvation that you came to show us a better way of living, a more just way of living. And we ask that you would help us along our own path. We would um, feel with you the suffering of those who are harmed and who are scapegoated in this world. Come, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come into this space and may we be part of it. Amen.